I'd just like to go to prayer one more time. We'll pray again here in a few moments as well. But um, I just have a few people that have uh, just gone through some things here in the church. Um, uh, Keith asked me if we'd be praying for, for his family as his brother's going into hospice. And I know that um, Brian has a friend that just lost their mother last night. And so let's just lift these requests up to the Lord before we turn our attention to the Word. Uh, Father in heaven, we, we again come to you. We thank you for being a God who cares. You know each individual situation and the hurts and the pain, the loss. We, um, we thank you that we have a high priest like Jesus who intimately knows our pains, who knows um, the struggles of this life, who knows um, loss and hurt and betrayal. Suffering, pain, joy, happiness. He was tempted like we are. And so this perfect God, You came into this world and You became flesh and You dwelt among us. What great comfort there is in knowing that Your your Son is interceding on our behalf right now. Father, I just pray as well for my friends. I know there's some pain this week and there's people that are sick and struggling with health issues. There are those that have lost their loved ones, neighbors. Uh, we pray for Mark's family and for Mark as he, as he enters hospice this week. Uh, I pray for Keith and his family as well, that you just bring comfort and encouragement. And might, um, might there be some special time with the family? Might there be people who would come to know you as a result of these present trials? We know that you use all these things for your glory and for our good. And so we pray to that end, and we pray that you would comfort. Amen. Well, you know, the, uh, we've been looking at the Epistle of Hebrews this last couple of weeks we've just started, and the Epistle of Hebrews is actually a sermon that was written into a letter that was um, kind of a sermon epistle, all in uh, one combined. It's a sermon about the superiority of Jesus Christ to Everything. Jesus is superior to everything. And the audience was mostly Jewish, and so it's not a surprise that the author of Hebrews, he first addresses the, 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 uh, Jesus' superiority to the angels. I, I've asked Brian to lead us in, the, in today's Scripture reading here in a few moments, uh, and I've act, I'm going to actually ask him if he would go all the way back to verse 1 um, and uh, read the whole chapter and, instead of just the verses I mentioned earlier. But before he does that, I'd like to just prepare us uh, to be better listeners of, of Hebrews chapter 1 and point out some of the things that, that I want you to watch out for. Uh, the first section of Hebrews, it demonstrates, uh, that Jesus, it demonstrates Jesus' superiority to the angels. And we're going to, to look at that first part this week. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the first warning passage of, of Hebrews. And then the week after that, we'll finish the section on the superiority of Jesus to the, the angels in that second panel. But, but within that first half, the author of Hebrews, he organizes his material in, a, in, a, in a, very, uh, a very organized, precise way to help us understand. When you pick up a magazine, or you just scroll through your phone and you're reading the news, any media is organized and broken up into to smaller parts. And, and we do that in a lot of different ways. Um, you, you, you pick up your phone and you're going to notice that there's punctuation. Uh, how many of you would like to read English with no punctuation? How, how many of you would like to read English with no vowels and no spaces, everything pushed together, and he's got to figure it all out? 
That's what it used to be like. And, and the ancient Greek, when, when these New Testament passages were written, there, were, there was no punctuation. There were no spaces between words. There was um, all capital letters, and it was all just one big block on a page. But people read it, and they had no problem with it just because they were so used to it. Um, but they needed a little bit of help sometimes in knowing where to stop, where to start, when a section was, you know, where, where are my paragraph breaks, when you don't have paragraph breaks. Uh, in today's world, we use punctuation. We also set off paragraphs. We've got headings. We've got subtitles. But uh, the ancient Greeks, it just looked like a solid page of capital letters. But in, 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 the, in ancient works like the book of Hebrews, they had these other techniques that they would use to help the reader and the hearer to know when a, a transition was happening in the passage. Uh, one of those techniques is what we call inclusio. Everybody say inclusio with me. There, now you've learned some Latin too. Aren't you excited? And so, inclusio is kind of like putting a couple um, bookends. Uh, you put these on your shelf and you've got all these books up there. And uh, if you're lucky, they're, they're the same size, but mine aren't today. And so, uh, you put these on your bookshelf and you put the books in between and it holds everything in between. Oftentimes, in, in Hebrew and in Greek and throughout your Bible, uh, the authors are going to use something like inclusio. And it was a way for them to tell the people that were reading their text, you know, hey, we got a section here, we're going to start it with this end, and we're going to put it right there, and then we're going to have this other section, and we're going to put it on this other side. And when you see that inclusio, you know that we're dealing with a whole passage, and then when you get past that, we're going to transition to a new section. And so, and so they would have these bookmarkers, these bookends, and when we come to Hebrews, you'll find that the first bookend is at the front end, and you'll find it in verse 5 when Brian's reading that. If you just want to look at it right now, we'll just note what it is. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And there's, there's, your, first, there's your first bookend. That, that's, um, that's the first part of it. And then as you go through the passage and you get through the chapter, you're going to come to verse 13, and look what verse 13 says. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Do you see it? And so what the author of Hebrews does is rather than have paragraph markers and all this punctuation, uh, and now you have that as a bonus too, but, but he tells you, here's how I'm putting all this together, and he's going to use this inclusio. So watch for that device. I encourage you to, to also watch for that as you're reading your own Bible and as you're doing your own Bible study. Because the author of the books of the Bible, uh, they're going to use techniques quite often like this. And so verse 4 uh, it introduces our topic. Verses 5 and 13 are going to give us their bookends. And then he's going to finish off the chapter with um, verse 14, which is going to pull it all together. But now, let's, let's talk about what happens between those two bookends. What, what happens in that in-between section? In this instance, uh, the author of Hebrews is going to use a, a favorite technique that, that Jewish rabbis used a lot in, in, in early New Testament culture, especially among the, the Jewish people. Um, these Jewish rabbis uh, used a technique called, we're just going to call it stringing pearls. That, that's the nice, easy tran English translation for it. Stringing pearls. And it's a picture of this, this pearl necklace. And what the Jewish rabbis would do, uh, including Jesus and the author of Hebrews, and Jesus was, Jesus was a master at stringing pearls in his sermons and, and as he talked to people. The author of Hebrews was also a master at this. Um, but if you've ever read a passage and, and you're in the New Testament and you come to a quote where it's quoting the Old Testament, how many of you ever looked at it and, and you just you read this Old Testament quote 
and you're trying to figure out how it fits into the New Testament passage that you're reading. And, and if you're like me, have any of you ever just kind of scratched your head and thought to yourself, it just seems like something's missing there. Ever felt that? My, okay, thank you. I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one. The reason that you probably felt that is because there is more. Uh, that's because there is something more here. Stringing pearls is when the teacher takes several passages or phrases from the, the Old Testament and, and he strings them together like a, a necklace of beautiful jewelry. But, but I want you to understand that when, they, when Jesus did this and when the author of Hebrews does this, He's not just randomly throwing a whole bunch of Old Testament passages at you, hoping that you'll catch a few of them. He's doing it with very clear purpose. And it's not just to provide you with a whole bunch of proof texts and to overwhelm you with a whole bunch of passages and words. He found a key word here and he went through his concordance and went, ah, cool, here's ten verses that have the word blah in it. And so that must prove my point. He's not doing that. Instead, what he's going to do is he wants you to take each one of those pearls and he wants you to understand that that little piece of Scripture comes from a wider passage. And he wants you to either, number one, to be familiar with the context of that passage as a whole so that you understand how that one piece that he quotes is part of a bigger picture that explains everything else that he's talking to. Or number two, he wants you, if you don't understand the context, he wants to challenge you to be a better student of the Word and to say, I don't understand why he's using this Old Testament passage, so what am I going to do? I'm going to find out where that Old Testament passage is, and I'm going to go and I'm going to look it up in the, in the Old Testament, and I'm going to get that context. And so he's going to encourage you to do some Bible study. And so it was a great way of rabbis teaching people and, and helping them to memorize God's Word, but also to, to say one little thing, but by saying this one little phrase mean an entire passage that you're already familiar with. And as I mentioned, Hebrews chapter 1, it's not just a random list of Old Testament verses that he's throwing at you, but each psalm and each passage that he quotes is, is one of the pearls. And he's pointing you to a section of Scripture that supports the big idea that Jesus is superior to everything. And particularly in this passage, that he's superior to the angels. In this instance, Hebrews chapter 1 is a string of seven pearls. They come in pairs of two, with the first two, the first pair appearing in verse 5. The second pair you're going to find in verses 6 and 7. The third pair, number 5 and 6, you're going to find in verses 8 through 12. And then uh, verse 5 and 13 are those, those clasps for the, the pearl necklace, the inclusio, if you will. And he's going to tie it all together and, and put it around your neck, and it's going to look beautiful. And that's going to hold the string of pearls together. And then he's going to tie in a seventh pearl with verses 13 and 14 to finish off the beauty of what we know in Hebrews chapter 1. And so look for inclusio and see if you can pick out each one of those seven pearls. And ask Brian if he would come up and um, read all of Hebrews chapter 1 for us today. Good morning. Would you stand with me as we read Scripture from the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, and be read from the English Standard Version. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the first, firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Or the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Thank you, Brian. Please be seated. Again, please pray with me as we ask God to bless our study of his word. Father, I do pray that as we dive into Hebrews chapter 1 today, I pray that you would open up our eyes, that you would open up our minds, that you would soften our hearts, and that we would walk in obedience. I pray that you would show areas where we're not worshiping Jesus. I, I pray that you would help us to see places that, that we put something else where Jesus is supposed to be. Maybe there's something that we're worshiping, something that we're valuing, something that we're placing at a, at a, with more worth than Christ by our, our words, our actions, the things that we dwell on in our minds. Help us to see these things. I pray that your spirit would do that work in our, in our hearts, that our minds would change and that we would walk the other direction. Please use your word now, we pray. Amen. You know, angels are magnificent beings, aren't they? As we open the scripture, we find them mentioned almost 300 times in over half of the books of the Bible. Uh, Jesus spoke of angels in his teaching, and many of the prophets received their message when it was brought to them by these divine messengers. Announcements would come by angels. And while we don't know, know how many angels there actually are, or actually even how many, how many different varieties or kinds of angels there are, uh, the Bible numbers them in myriads, in thousands of thousands, in ten thousands of ten thousands, um, ten thousands times ten thousands. They're, they're innumerable. And we have at least three different varieties that, he, that the Bible describes. But you know, the world is just fascinated with angels. I, I was searching on Amazon yesterday as an experiment, and just to give you a very unscientific com comparison, 
Uh, I, I searched on Amazon, ju- Amazon just using the word Avengers. I know Spider-Man's big right now and, and all those things. I just searched for Avengers and Amazon told me that I had 20,000 results that I could search for. So I, I can buy about anything that has to do with Avengers that I ever want. Then I upped the game and I searched for Star Wars. 40,000 results of anything I wanted to buy that was Star Wars related on, just on Amazon.com. Then I changed the word to angels on Amazon in just their general search filter and over 60,000 results came up of things that I can buy on Amazon.com that have to do with angels. Everything from statues to wind chimes and books about claiming that, I, that they can teach me how to contact angels, which by the way, the Bible says don't do that. And all the way to charms and, and fictional books about and stories about good angels and bad angels and really raunchy angels. All kinds of, of, of things that uh, Amazon wants to sell you. This isn't, isn't new, however. If you're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Jewish communities that live between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, they also were very fascinated with angels. And so if you read books like the, the, the um, uh, First Enoch, I think is what it's called, and, and there's, there's all these different epistles that were written within the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Essene, Essene, Essene community, they were fascinated with angels and how the angels were described in the Old Testament. And we still have a lot of their writings today, and like our culture, they, they love stories about angels. And so they made up all kinds of fictional accounts about angels that were similar to the ones that are described in the Old Testament. And apparently, the topic of angels was also very popular within Jewish communities during Jesus and Paul and Apollos' day. Uh, especially the further west you went into Asia Minor and into Rome, uh, the, 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 the concept of angels was something that, that people just liked to talk about. And so while angels are magnificent beings... There is someone who is far greater, far superior, and his name is Jesus. We can't get lost worshiping angels or being so fascinated with them that we become distracted from the one that we are called to worship, the one who is far superior to any spiritual being that we call an angel. And so Hebrews introduces the first topic in verse 4. Uh, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then Hebrews asks us a simple rhetorical question. And this is our first, our first inclusio statement. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And with that, let's look at our first pair of pearls. Both of these passages are, are messianic passages. That means they're, they're dealing with prophecy that's prophesying the coming of the Messiah, who the Messiah would be, and what He would do. They're both messianic passages of the Old Testament. And Hebrews introduces, uh, introduced us to Jesus' superior position back in verse 2. That, that introductory statement that we looked at a few weeks ago, that's kind of an outline for chapter 1. If you want to know the, the main points, just read that introduction and, and He's going to follow that. And so... And so he introduced us to this idea that Jesus is this, the Son of God, and in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things. And so our first set of pearls shows us that Jesus has a superior position than the angels. He is the, the King, the Son of God. And our first pearl comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. 
Psalm 2 starts with, with chaos. It's a picture of a world where the nations are raging against God and His Messiah. We're going to burst out of our bonds. We're going to cast away God's rule over us. And so what does God say? And you're more than welcome to follow along in chapter 2 because we're going to be jumping in and out of the Old and New Testament today. And so God responds. The nations are raging. And in chapter 2 of Psalms, God says, I laugh at you. I scoff. God the Father is sitting in the heavens and He laughs. And He speaks to them in wrath. And there is terrifying words that come from His mouth. And He informs them that He has set up His King on Zion. That's the Messiah. And then in verse 7, the Messiah speaks. The Messiah speaks in victory and He announces that a decree, a promise was made that the God the Father made to Him sometime in eternity past. He calls it the decree. In theological circles, you'll, you'll read lots of papers and hear lots of people talking about the decree and when was it done and, and can we place a time on it. So if you, if you want to write a dissertation, you know, you just study that one word and then you can figure it all out for us. Okay, But we're just going to call it the decree today. And, and he says there's this decree. In eternity past, the Lord said to the Messiah, and here's our pearl quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, I want you to understand that the word begotten has a couple different meanings. When you hear the word begotten, what do you think? Was that birth? Yeah, a beginning. Uh, and so, uh, a lot of people read this passage, and you're going to have cults like the Jehovah Witnesses that are going to say, well, you see, Jesus had a beginning. It says right there that he was begotten. And just like I was begotten by my father, and my father was begotten by his father, so Jesus was begotten by God at some point, and God created him. But that is not what Psalms is saying, and that's not what Hebrews is saying. That's one meaning of the word begotten, and it's used that way sometimes in the New Testament. But in, in New Testament culture, uh, there's, there's a whole different, whole different frame of reference for how that word begotten is used. And sometimes it does carry this idea of something that is beginning, uh, and that's usually how we understand it in the Western world. But begotten in the world of the New Testament was also understood in the context of someone's induction to a position of royalty. Uh, a lot of um, uh, people remember when Queen Elizabeth was, um, was inducted as, as the, the queen after her parents died. She, um, she became the Queen of England and she's been the longest living monarch, if I understand correctly, than any other monarch in uh, British history. Uh, she existed before she became queen, right? Right? Help me out. Yes? Okay, yeah. She existed already, but at that point, she was begotten in a sense. And that's kind of the, the idea. It's, it's bigger than that, but that's a, a, a simple explanation of it. And so it's this idea of, um, uh, in this context, of being inducted to a position of, of royalty. And Psalm 2 points to a decree made in eternity past in which Jesus was granted the title and the position of King of the nations. King of kings. And the title wasn't just an, an ordinary one. He wasn't just called a king or you're going to be a ruler. But God says and calls Him His Son. Which is another way of saying that the Messiah shares the very same nature as the Father Himself. He is the one and only Son. And the Son is God and He is eternal and He is unchanging. And that Son's oneness with the Father demonstrates that He is equal in nature with God the Father. 
No angel was ever given a scepter to rule the universe and to judge the nations. Psalm 2 gives a warning to the rulers of the earth to serve the Lord with fear. And he says, kiss the Son, lest He be angry. Kissing the Son would have been a, a, um, a display of, of homage to the Son. Kind of like bowing and kneeling and kissing the ring. It was, it was a picture of, of submitting to the rulership and to the authority of the Son. He says, kiss the Son, lest He be angry. Submits to God's anointed Messiah, the King, Son. Or perish in His wrath. But then he concludes with a promise. And he says, blessed are those who take refuge in Him. So I want you to understand that when he quotes chapter 2, verse 7, he's quoting that whole thing, okay? And he wants you, when, he, when you hear those words from chapter 2, verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 1, he wants you to get the bigger picture of everything that's happening in, Hebrews, in, in, Gen, in Genesis, Hebrews, somewhere in the Bible it says, right? Psalms, Psalm chapter 2. No angel was ever granted that kind of position. No angel was given that kind of authority. Angels are called sons of God in the sense that they have their origin from God, but no angel is called the Son. No angel is given the throne that Jesus is and invited to rule over the kingdoms of the earth. Our second pearl goes with the first one, and it comes actually from 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Some of you might actually be familiar with this passage already and recognize that it's one of the key passages in the Old Testament. And it's the famous passage where God establishes the Davidic covenant. He makes promises to David that, that he says, I, I, these are unconditional. I, I'm not going to revoke these things to you, David. You see, David wanted to build, a, build God a temple. But God tells him and says, no, David, that's not for you. I'm not going to have you build it, but your son will build it. And he promises to make David's name great, to establish his kingdom so that his throne will be established forever. And then in verse 14, again, here's the verse that's quoted in Hebrews, God promises to have a unique relationship with David's descendants. And he says to David regarding his children and his children's children and generations to come that will last forever and ever, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, Solomon failed, didn't he? He wasn't the greatest king. He got a bit distracted by his many wives and concubines and, and the gods that he began to worship because of them, and his heart was led astray. Uh, he built that temple, but not everything that God intended through Solomon's reign came to pass. And Solomon's son failed, and his son after him. And while there were good kings and there were bad kings, none of them completely fulfilled what was expected in this Davidic covenant, which their kingdom would last forever. Do you see any of their kings still reigning today? So none of it happened yet, did it? And so the prophets, as you go through the Old Testament later on, the prophets are going to recognize the coming of the Messiah as the one who would be the greater son, greater than Solomon greater than Josiah, greater than Hezekiah, greater than some of the greatest kings of Judah. And this Messiah would come in whom all the promises of the David, Davidic covenant would be fulfilled. And then an angel comes along. In a very famous passage that we just read a couple months ago, or just a month ago, an angel named Gabriel. He comes to Mary. And he told her in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, that you shall call His name Jesus, 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Does sound familiar? And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And thus, the author of Hebrews can say that in the ultimate sense of Jesus, I will be to Him a Father, and He shall be to me a Son. And so he ties those two passages together. And usually, and, and, and excuse me, he ties those passages together, and, and thus he's showing how Jesus is superior in his position, in his title. Now, usually angels don't appear in physical form, they are invisible by their nature, they're spiritual beings. Although, when they're called to, uh, they're able to appear and, and take on some form. I, I don't know how all that works. I, I have no idea. Don't, you can ask me, but I, I will just say I don't know. Because God hasn't explained it all to us. But in some instances, angels do appear among men and they seem to blend in when they appear so that other people don't even know that they're, they're in the presence of angels. Hebrews is going to later tell us that very thing. That some of us have entertained angels without even knowing about it. For all we know, there may be numerous classes of angels that God has just deemed it unnecessary to tell us about. But one of the classes of angels that are described uh, are the four living creatures who day and night serve before the throne of God. We're told that these four creatures, these spiritual beings, declare holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And from what we can tell, this variety of spiritual beings is just limited to those four individuals who serve this one specific function in their existence. Another variety that serve alongside the four living creatures, the Bible just simply calls them seraphim. And it's a plural word that means the burning ones. They have wings like a lot of the other angels do. Uh, they're similar in form to some of the four living creatures. And they serve in God's presence. And they declare His holiness. And so these are burning ones are, are there uh, in, in the presence of God before His throne. Different kinds of angels. But whatever the case, we know that angels are magnificent beings. But never was a seraphim, seraph, I guess I should say, never was a seraph. Seraphim is more than one. Never was one of the four living creatures that stood before the throne. Never was Satan, who was the greatest of all the angels who, who served before God and led others in worship. Never was any of them called the begotten Son. No angel is eternal. No angel was given authority described like that we see in Psalm chapter 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you see, Jesus has a superior position in his unique relationship with God the Father. Let's move on to the second pair of pearls in verses 6 and 7. If you want to jump back to Hebrews. The recipients of the book of Hebrews were facing a temptation. They were being tempted to walk away. They had friends that were part of the, the Jewish faith that hadn't trusted Christ. They had friends that were probably part of their church that were considering Jesus and weren't sure, do I really buy into this? Some of them have bought into it mentally. Their, their minds were made up, but they hadn't repented of their sin and trusted Christ personally. But there was a temptation to go back. You see, we believe that Jesus is God. Jesus is God Himself. He's eternal. 
And so some of their fellow Jews were calling them to walk away from this Christian faith. And so the author of Hebrews is going to them and he's, he takes them to their own Jewish Scriptures. He takes them to their Old, Old Testament. And he demonstrates that not only does Jesus have a superior position than the angels as the Son of God, but He also is, has a superior honor that the angels superior honor than the angels do in that the angels are called to worship and to serve Jesus. And he shows that from the very Old Testament Scriptures that they hold dear. See, Hebrews continues this idea that Jesus is the heir of all things by calling Him the firstborn. Again, again, when we talk about firstborn, what does that say to you? They came into existence, right? Firstborn, kind of like the previous word we looked at, it was a term that could be used of the first child, but, but it was a bigger term. It, it, was, it included the things regarding the, the firstborn and all the rights and all the privileges that the firstborn had. It wasn't just referring to his order of birth, but it was referring to you're, you're the, the heir. You're the primary heir of everything that this family has. And you're going to get a larger inheritance than your other brothers and sisters. And you're going to take care of your brothers and sisters. And you're going to be the patriarch of your family. That position comes with responsibility. And so he uses this title of Jesus. Uh, it's not a word that means that Jesus had a beginning, but it was another title for someone who had priority in the family. And, and Hebrews is just continuing this idea that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in verse 6, the author of Hebrews takes us to Deuteronomy chapter 32, our next pearl. Here we encounter Moses on the, the last day of his life. Deuteronomy chapter 32, we find that he writes a song. And right before he goes up to the mountain and God takes his life, he writes a song recounting God's faithfulness. He shows how God was faithful to Israel. God was faithful to them when they were in Egypt. God was faithful to them when they were wandering out in the wilderness. And then in the middle of the song, he prophesies of Israel's future and he demonstrates how God is going to be faithful to also judge sin. And God is going to be faithful to deliver Israel from their enemies. And so he teaches this song to Israel on the last day of his life. In fact, God commanded this song to be taught to the people so that it would be a witness specifically against them when they sinned against their God later on and they walked away. And so finally, he goes through this entire passage, this beautiful song of, of God's faithfulness and God's judgment and God's provision and God's promise to deliver them. And he comes to verse 43, which is quoted where? Oh, please. Where is he quoted? Hebrews. Hebrews. Thank you. I almost forgot what book we're in. I need a reminder here. All right. He quotes, he's, he quotes it in Hebrews. So, so, verse 43 is quoted in Hebrews, is the culmination of that entire song of Moses, which every faithful Jew would have had memorized. And this last verse was particularly recognized as a messianic prophecy among the Jews of, of Jesus' day. There, the heavens are commanded to rejoice. They're commanded to rejoice with Him and all the mighty ones are commanded to bow down to Him in worship. Now, some of your translations might read, if you have the NIV, all the nations. Uh, some of your translations might read all gods. The Hebrew word that's used there um, is Elohim. Uh, some of you have heard the word Elohim before. Usually we translate that as what? God. It's a plural word that, that means He's the God of gods. And so we, when you see Elohim throughout the Hebrew Old Testament for the most part, it means God. 
but, but the, the word in general, it just means a mighty one. And so El, Elohim plural, is the mighty ones. And so referring to God, it means the, 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 the mightiest of all the mighty ones. But, but that word sometimes is actually used of the angels. They're the mighty ones. And when the Jews translated the Hebrew into the Greek, they recognized that this passage was not talking about all the false gods of the world because they can't even speak, let alone do anything. But they, they recognized that it was about the mighty ones, and they even translated it in their Greek Bible as angels of God. And the author of Hebrews, he capitalizes on this, and he actually quotes the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures when he gives them a copy of Hebrews. But here's where the Song of Moses gets even more amazing. You see, in verse 43, the author of Hebrews shows his audience that the angels are commanded to bow down to the Messiah. The one who will atone for the people. And this same song is referred to in the Psalms. Uh, and then it's um, alluded to perhaps in Colossians chapter 1 where it refers to Jesus and His atonement. And then it's also referred to in Revelation chapter 15 later on. You see, right before the angels pour out all their bowls of wrath on the earth, there's a, a great crowd that's described who gathers in heaven and they sing, and it tells us, Revelation chapter 15, they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And they combine both songs into one and we get a new chorus that's an addition and an echo of what we saw Moses sing when he taught the people that song originally. And so they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb and in a chorus which appears to be a new verse to the song in Deuteronomy that echoes many of the, the, the words throughout. Listen to what they sing of Jesus. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship You. For Your righteous acts have been revealed. Does it sound like the God that we worship? Hebrews catches that. He catches what Moses is talking about in his, in his psalm. And he shows the people from their own Scriptures that Jesus is to be worshipped. And then our fourth pearl comes from Psalm 104. And here we have a psalm that praises God for all of His works. And it's this beautiful song about God's work of, of creation. And as he goes throughout, he shows how God is, is, is busy in His work of creation. He, he shows how his, his work of providing for His creation and about how God rejoices in the works of His creation. My favorite verse in Psalm 104 is verse 26. Uh, he comes to God's work in the sea and talks about how God has made all the innumerable uh, creatures, the living creatures that swim out in the sea and in the oceans. In verse 26, he says, there go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. You see, Leviathan was some great sea creature. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was a giant octopus or a, a, a great whale. Something that's been extinct for a long time. I have no idea what Leviathan looked like. But he was huge and he was dangerous. And the people feared Leviathan. He was, he was the stuff of legends. And you don't go out into the water because you might run into something like this. Whatever it was, you didn't want to take your ship next to it. But for God, in Psalm 104, God created this great sea monster for playing in the waters. And so Leviathan, if you will, is God's rubber ducky of the Old Testament. And then he says, oh, and the angels too. 
created them. I made them. They're just they're, they're, they're the winds. They're my messengers. They are. They're just a part of God's work which He's made, and they serve as messengers. Hebrews tells us this. This is what the angels are. Is that anything like what we see Jesus described as? Who is the one who is to be the recipient of worship, not only of us, but also of these angelic beings that, that, that gather around His throne? One of the other classes of angelic beings the Bible calls uh, cherubim. Again, it's a plural word. Cherub, cherubim. Uh, and it just means winged ones. These are what we often think of when we picture angels in Hollywood, whether it's John Travolta or Christopher Lloyd or whoever the guy was that played Clarence in that great Christmas classic. Uh, except for Clarence, actually. He wasn't a cherub yet. He, he wanted to become one because why? Every time a bell rings. Yeah, that's horrible theology. Bad. All right. You, you will not become an angel someday. All right. You, you'll worship God, but you're not going to be an angel. You're never going to have those kind of wings. Neither did Clarence. Sorry. Uh, you know, we imagine them with feathers, and they're usually wearing a robe, and they have, they have to be barefoot, right? Always have to be barefoot. Angels are magnificent beings. But ultimately, how does the Bible describe them? What are they? They're messengers. In fact, the word angel means messenger. They're created beings, but not so with Jesus. Instead, Jesus is ascribed superior honor and the angels are commanded to worship Him. And that brings us to the third pair of pearls in verses 8-12. through 12. Again, the angels are created beings. They, are, they have a beginning. They are not eternal. In the case of fallen angels, they will be judged and their end is destruction. Our, our fifth pearl points us to Psalm chapter 45. Again, a beautiful song of praise to God that's been recognized in Jewish and Christian communities as a messianic psalm. A psalm that prophesies the coming of the Messiah. And it pictures the Messiah as victorious. Sitting on, a, on His throne. And the entire psalm, it's, it's, it's a love song. It almost sounds like a wedding. And it's a picture of the King who is, uh, who is one who loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And therefore, He's exalted above all of His companions and He rules with uprightness. And so the author of Hebrews, he's going to apply that word regarding the, the companions of this King. And he's going to apply that to, to the angels themselves. Demonstrating that Jesus is superior to the angels. And then also embedded in this psalm is this amazing statement where God calls the Messiah. What does He call Him? Do you see it? God calls the Messiah God. Isn't that something else? Right there in the Bible. As you're looking at this Messiah, this prophecy regarding the coming of, of the Messiah One, the Holy One, the Anointed One, God calls Him God. And ultimately, the main point that Hebrews is making is that Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is a God and His throne is forever and ever. And then the sixth pearl that belongs with this one uh, takes us to Psalm 102. And it continues along the same lines of emphasizing Jesus' eternality. Psalm 45 was a, a love song. Psalm 102 is, is the song of a cry from someone who's, who's afflicted. 
And this psalmist emphasizes how, how brief our days are. And as you read through the whole song, he, he talks about ash and, and it's, uh, my life is like dust. My, my life is like uh, the, the, the wind, a shadow. We're like um, grass that withers away. But not so with the Lord. He is enthroned forever and He is the One who provides us our security because we are not eternal. And we need to depend on Him because we are like a shadow. And so we have to trust in the One and find our security in the One who is eternal. And the author of Hebrews is then going to use three verses from the very last stanza. And again, pointing to the eternal existence of Jesus, he demonstrates that Jesus not only reigns forever, but He is the very One who is present from the beginning of creation all the way to the end. He, he laid the foundations, he says, when he, he created the heavens and the earth. He laid, he laid the foundations of it. Uh, we, um, we all build houses. And we all know that if you, if you have a house, the first thing that you need is a good what? Good foundation. And, and if you, you put that in wrong, you, you rush the process, you um, don't dig deep enough, the house may look really nice, but ten years down the road, what's going to happen? It's going to start to crumble. It's going to start to look bad. We looked at some houses here in DeWitt when we moved here, and I remember one house that we went in, we loved the outside of it. It was just beautiful. And this place was just gorgeous. They painted over all the bad stuff. And we went inside, and it felt like we were in Willy Wonka's toy factory. I mean, I, I rolled a marble across the floor, and it, it kind of did this wavy motion thing. And I, I felt when I walked through the house that I was walking on the, the walls. It was, the, the foundation was horrible. It was an older house, but the foundation had crumbled. And Jesus lays a foundation for the entire universe. And so that when He spoke it into existence, the foundation was there. The rules that operate the universe and the stars and the galaxies spinning at millions of miles, billions, however fast we're flying through the universe and, and still not exploding on one another. Um, we're all held together. The rules and the way He created it, there's a foundation that holds. One day also it says He's going to be the one that puts it all away. It pictures a, a robe being rolled up. I, when I uh, went to college, I, I, um, I finally splurged and I bought one of those college sweatshirts that, that cost a fortune for just a piece of cloth. But it was my favorite. And you had pockets that I could put my hands in when I was cold and a hood that I could pull over. And, and uh, I, I wore it all the time. And over the years, it got dirty and coffee stained and you know, took it on camp trips. And so there's pieces of the desert that never washed out. And it just got kind of nasty. But I still liked wearing it. It was comfortable. It was warm. And, but the time came when I had to finally say, my Moody Bible Institute sweatshirt has to be put away. And so we rolled it up and burnt it or threw it away or something. But that, that's the picture of, of what's described here. Of, uh, he, he, he rolls up this garment as it's, it's time to finish it up. And, and, and the universe is falling apart. It's coming to an end. And He is the one who not only created it, but He's also the one that's going to be there to, to roll it up like a garment and change it for something new. The point of Hebrews is this. Jesus created all things. And unlike the creation, He never changes. He will never have an end. In the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16-17, and 17, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So there's your angels. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through Him and for Him. 
And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus is superior to the angels in that He he has greater position than the angels. They are servants of the Most High God. But Jesus is the Son of God and thus equal to God. Jesus is superior to the angels in that He has greater honor than they do. And thus, they are God's messengers, but Jesus is the God that they are commanded to worship. And Jesus, finally, we also see, is superior to the angels in that He has a greater existence. They are merely created beings like you and me. They have a beginning. All creation has a beginning and an end unless He makes it us new. Jesus Himself is the beginning and the end. His reign lasts forever and He is the eternal One. Now in verse 13, He's going to put that other book in the, up. He's going to ask us, did, did God say this to any of the angels? He puts the book in on the chapter and He wraps up the first part of His argument with one last pearl. And this time He's going to take us to Psalm 110. Now, He's already referred to this psalm back in His introduction. Uh, he, he mentioned part of the verse that He quotes right here. Uh, in fact, Psalm 110 is going to be alluded to and quoted 12 times throughout the book of Hebrews. So, you might want to start getting familiar with Psalm 110 because it's very important for the argument of the entire book of Hebrews. We're going to see that come up several times as we, as we go through this, this book over this next few weeks and months. Psalm 110 is actually the most commonly used Old Testament passage that we find in the New Testament. Jesus Himself is going to refer to Psalm 110. Remember when He was confronted by the, um, the, the, the religious leaders of the day? And so He challenges them. And He says, explain verse 1 to me. How does the Lord say to my Lord? And they didn't have an answer. They couldn't. The point for now, we're not going to jump into all of Psalm 110 because we're going to come back here. But the point for now is that Jesus has a position of authority that no angel ever held. First, Jesus is called Lord by God the Father. Now, being, being called Lord by God the Father is about as much authority as you can carry, isn't it? Secondly, Jesus accomplished what no angel has ever done. He finished His work and He sat. He completed it. And now He sits at the right hand of God the Father. In contrast, the angels are sent out and they do His bidding. But here's the one that blows my mind. You and I are those who inherit salvation according to Hebrews chapter 1. We inherit salvation with Jesus. Believers in Jesus Christ share in His glory. We actually share in the inheritance that belongs to Jesus. What's His is ours. And the angels who were created as more intelligent than we are, as more powerful than we are, more glorious and beautiful than we are, they are engaged in special service on our behalf. And so in summary, Jesus is superior to the angels. He's called Son and has a superior position. He's worshipped and has a superior honor. Jesus is eternal and He has superior existence. No angel was ever invited to sit at the right hand of the God the Father. Jesus has supreme authority. As I was thinking through angels and, and what the Bible says about angels, I, I, I came across a few passages where, um, where people encountered the angels in the Bible. One of my favorite passages that points and, and shows us the deity of Christ uh, is Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. Uh, John 
is up in heaven. And he's seen all these things and he's seen these visions. Now remember, this is the Apostle John. Do we like this guy? I mean, he gave us five books of the Bible. Um, he, he took care of Jesus' mother. He was one of Jesus' best friends. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of clo- Jesus' closest companions. He loved Jesus. He worshipped Jesus. And then he gets to heaven and he sees all this stuff and this angel comes to him. And, and in chapter 19, verse 10, John says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. John, the apostle. So I fell down to his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that! Don't do that, John! I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God! I'm just a servant, John. Worship God! A couple chapters later, you think John figured it out, right? He's like, okay, so that was... Got corrected on that one really bad. I'm never going to do that again. <clears throat> Three chapters later, chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Several books back, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted. He's out in the wilderness. And what does Satan do? What is Satan? He's, he's a fallen angel. He's one of the most glorious, beautiful of angels. And he fell. And he tries to tempt Jesus into sinning. And he tempts him several times. Three times in particular that were, that were given the, the account of it. And he said to him, all these I will give you. He shows Jesus the kingdoms. Hey, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy. I'm going to give you all these kingdoms. And we'll fulfill 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to fulfill the Psalms that we've been looking at. We're going to fulfill all these things. And prophecy will be fulfilled. You'll receive the kingdom and you can reign as the king. Perfect, right? Just, I'll give them to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. So Jesus' position on this is rather clear, right? Fast forward 10 chapters. Matthew chapter 14. Verses 32 and 33. They're in a boat. They're walking. They're trying to get across the lake. And Jesus has just fed multitudes with fish. And he, he stays and he prays all night while these guys are out there suffering. And he can see him out there in the, out there in the boat. And, and what's Jesus do? Put on his flippers. He walks. He walks out on the water and they think it's a ghost and they freak out. And they're like, ah. And he says, hey, it's just me. He gets in the boat. Don't be afraid. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Because this passage where Peter tried. He walked on the water with Jesus and he failed. And those in the boat, here's the word, what does it say? They worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Several chapters later, again in Matthew, chapter 28, behold, Jesus met them. This is after he's died and, 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 and risen from the dead, and he's just about ready to send into heaven. And, and behold, Jesus met with them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet. 
and they worshipped him. Actually, this is at the tomb with the, the women. They worshipped him. A few verses later in verse 17, now we're at the ascension. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, Don't do that! Right? Is that what it says in your Bible? No. <laughs> they doubted him, and he comes and he, he helps them with their doubts. They worshiped him, some doubted, and Jesus comes and he says, Listen to this all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, you're right to worship me. One last passage. John chapter 9, verses 35 and 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, this man that he had healed. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. You guys, we have a Savior who is worthy of being worshiped. The angels, they're great. They're beautiful. Look forward to seeing them and worshiping alongside them. I don't want to play ping pong or sports with them because I hear they're really good. But amazing creatures, amazing beings, far smarter than I am. But they're just servants. But Jesus is worthy of our worship. You know, you may not have an issue with angels in your spiritual walk. That might not be what you're struggling through today. Most of us aren't spending a lot of time reading the book of Enoch, trying to figure out angels and this and that. And Angels are big in our culture. But maybe angels aren't what you've replaced for Jesus, but there's something else. The argument of Hebrews 1 still stands. Jesus is better. His position is better. His title is better. He's eternal. He's the Son of God. He's worthy of your worship. My prayer for you as we continue through Hebrews is that, that the Holy Spirit would shed light in our lives and show us those things where, we, where we're putting something else first. Because, like I said last time, we are made to worship. That, that's what God made you for. That's your, your function. Uh, a car rolls on wheels. Uh, it doesn't climb mountains and, and fly. It, it does what it's supposed to do. It, it functions by traveling on the road. That's what it was created for. We are created beings that are built to worship. And if you're not worshiping Jesus, you are worshiping something else. There's something else in your life that you say, this is worthy of my time. This is worthy of my attention. This is worthy of all my energy and my money. And I'm going to invest in this thing. And we worship it in different ways. And if it's not Jesus, it's something else. And so might we come to Him today, put that aside, and like that man that came to Jesus, cry out, Lord, I believe. And worship Him. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what You teach us about Your Son, Jesus. We thank You for these angelic beings who do so much on our behalf. These messengers that carry out Your will. We know that our prayer life is integrally related to their 
behavior and their um, what hinders them. A spiritual battle that we don't see. There's so much that, that to this spiritual realm that, that we have no idea what's going on. But in the midst of that, we, we also realize we don't have to figure all that out. Because Jesus got it. And He's the one that we worship. And so my prayer is that Jesus would be the one that we would know and that we would love and that we would adore. Lord, help us in our unbelief, we pray. Amen.